when the day is done and there's no one else around while I'm lying here in bed you're in my heart you're in my head you're all I need you're all I need there are a million voices calling out my name but you're the one I want to hear so make the others disappear you're all I need you're all I need you are all I need when I'm surrounded you are all I need if I'm by myself you fill me when I'm empty there is nothing else you're all I need when the morning comes and your mercy is renewed there's a fire in my bones I'm not afraid to go alone you're all I need you're all I need the sun on my face I hear you whisper loud You're still the God that open sees Every flower, even me You're all I need You're all I need You're all I need when I'm surrounded You're all I need if I'm by myself You fill me when I'm empty There is nothing else You're all I need drawn to everything that you do nothing compares with you you are all I need when I'm surrounded you are all I need if I'm by myself you fill me when I'm empty there is nothing else you're all I need when I'm surrounded you are all I need if I'm by myself you fill me when I'm empty there is nothing else you're all I need yeah you're all I need you're all I need you're all I need this is the day the Lord hath made so let us rejoice and be glad in it. I'm delighted you've joined us today. My name is Hal Brady, and I want to welcome you to Hal Brady Ministries. I trust that this program will be a blessing to you. Now let's turn to our scripture, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 12. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified of God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile 
and you're still in your sins, then those also who have died in Christ have perished. It is for this life only that we have hoped in Christ. We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you join me please for a moment of prayer? O God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, which art our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Canon Dick Shepherd was the minister of St. Martin in the Fields in London, England, right after the First World War. It is reported that when he died, which was very unexpectedly, that the newspapers ran a large picture of his pulpit. There it was, the same as ever, but empty. But at the same time, a ray of light came across the Bible, which was open on the pulpit. And underneath were these words, Here endeth the first lesson. The implication here, and rightly so, is that there is another lesson to follow. So is death when we go to sleep, or is it when we finally wake up? Why a sermon on resurrection hope and life after death? Many reasons come to my mind, and there are probably many others. But nevertheless, they all go back to the words of Paul. Listen to these words. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain, and your faith has been in vain. Here Paul is attacking the central position of his opponents in Corinth. These people flatly said that dead people do not rise again. Paul rebuked them. He said, if you take that position, you're saying that Jesus Christ has not been raised and the Christian faith is wrecked. So Paul goes on the offensive. And he says that Christianity without the resurrection is completely false. It is a horrible, unreal thing. But in fact, Paul says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. Notice that Paul doesn't say that Christ is the only fruit of those who have died, but the first fruit of those who have died. The implication here is that there is a harvest to come. So the resurrection of Jesus precedes the resurrection of all believers which is to come. So why a sermon on resurrection hope and life after death? First of all, as a corrective to some modern-day excuses. Someone has written a very interesting book called The Last Enemy. And in this book is made this tremendous affirmation of faith. I believe not only in life after death, but in life before death. So do I, so do we all. And so the writer of 1 John says, He or she that hath the Son hath life. So the scripture teaches us that eternal life begins in the present but it also teaches us that it continues after death. And so that is the fact of the matter. But for the most part, modern American Christendom stresses the present aspect of the continuum only. We are basically told that while God's love may extend beyond the grave, nevertheless, his concern and our concern should be in the present. Now, we all know that faith should be involved in the present. There is no question about that. All we have to think about is the nature of our call and the nature of this world in which we live, the precarious nature of this world in which we live. 
Jesus said, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Dr. James Forbes, former pastor of Riverside Church, New York, concluded with this verse that only those who have been given a reference by the poor will get into heaven. He's simply saying that we need to work and assist the poor. Some years ago, there was a little girl in the north that got lost in the woods. It was a cold, sleety, wintry, snowy kind of day. Hundreds of people came out to look for her. They knew they didn't have much time. If she did not be found soon, then she would die from cold exposure. They looked for hours but couldn't find her. Finally, one of the researchers said this, why don't we just join hands and walk through the woods together? Maybe we can find her that way. They did in less than 15 minutes, but it was too late. She was dead from the cold. Somebody said in that awful moment, why didn't we join hands sooner? That's a good question for many of the ills of this modern world. Why didn't we join hands sooner? Now, the political theologians of the Americas, Asia, and Africa are going to be right to condemn us for our belief in heaven if we dismiss our concern for this suffering world in which we live. We ought to be concerned. Our primary mission is this world. But I ask you, can we carry out the mandate of the social gospel while at the same time affirming our belief in life after death? For me and numerous others, the answer is yes. John Calvin, the great 16th century reformer, was very concerned about eternal life, but he was equally concerned about the sewage mess in his hometown of Geneva, Switzerland. And then there was our own John Wesley in terms of we Methodists. John Wesley was a great social reformer, but he believed in life after death. He said, we're here for no other reason than to know, serve, and love God and to do it for all eternity. And then there was Jesus Christ, this great servant of all the servants. And yet Jesus said he looked forward to that day in the kingdom when he would meet with his followers around the great banquet table. Let me be specific. I believe in a personal and communal life after death. I believe it deeply and personally, and I am not ashamed or embarrassed to profess that belief in a very skeptical 21st century world in which I'm trying to be a citizen as well. So I think we need to be aware of the fact that we preach resurrection hope and life after death as a corrective to modern-day excesses. And then secondly, we also do it as a pointer to the biblical witness. Sometimes little children phrase questions for those of us who are adults. I want you to listen to some of their questions and the way they phrased it. Dear God, I have to know something. What is it like in heaven? I know it's nice, but what kind of nice? What happens when it rains? Monty. Dear God, what is it like when you die? Nobody will tell me. I just want to know. I don't want to do it. Your friend, Mike. Eternal life beyond the grave. What can be said about it? We need to get something clear at the outset. As the late Bishop Earl Hunt said, there are no blueprints of heaven. We're only given beautiful phraseology pictures of heaven, or as somebody said, appetizing hints of, of heaven. Someone asked a well-known minister, why didn't Jesus tell us more about heaven? Or why didn't the Bible tell us more about heaven? He said, first of all, if heaven is as amazing as we think it is, 
many people here would want to check out of their own accord before they finish useful service. He said, the second reason is we don't have the capacity to understand. How can you explain the Phantom of the Opera to somebody who can't hear? You can say the music is beautiful, intriguing, thrilling, inspiring, but the words absolutely make no sense to someone who is deaf. So we can't explain it to them. But there are those appetizing hints of what the life to come is like. For instance, there's John on the Isle of Patmos. He said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and there's no more sea. Remember, John was a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos, and the sea was his prison walls. The sea shut him in. The sea kept him from going to work. The sea was his handicap. And so it was only natural that he would say, when I get to heaven, there's not going to be any more cramping sea walls. There'll be no more sea. So what does this mean? It simply means there'll be no handicaps in the life to come. No handicaps in the life to come. And then there's Paul's word in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What he's really trying to say is the personality will be preserved. James Harney said he went to visit one of his members who had just remodeled his home. He said that he had been in the other home before it was remodeled, and it was comfortable and adequate, but there were certain ways about it that were not true of this family. So when they had it remodeled, the architect came and sat with them and learned their family ways. And James Harney said when he went into that remodeled home, he said, this is really you. This is really you. So no matter what the glorified body is going to be like when we leave here, it's going to be really us. Heaven is home. And then there are the immortal words of John in chapter 14. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. Now the word for rooms, mansions, that word is also the word that really means to abide, to abide. Now we Christians really don't know what heaven is going to be like, but we do know who is going to be in heaven. And it's enough for us just to know that we will be for him forevermore. His presence will be our glory forevermore. So why a sermon on resurrection hope and life after death? Here's another thought for you. This thought is as a comfort and hope to God's people. When you get right down to it, there are just several reasons why we believe in life after death or eternal life. Just a few. First, it has to do with the nature of God and our conviction about the nature of God. If we believe that God is a God of love, and we do, don't we surely believe that God would provide another area of life after this one for us? If not, how can we answer the questions of those who spent a lifetime of suffering? How do we answer the question for those who've died before the age of accountability? How do we answer the question about those who've lived in an unjust world? This has to do with the character of God. If God is a God of love and justice, don't you think he's going to make right the injustices and irregularities of this world? As I said, it has to do with the character of God. Shall not the God of all the earth do right? Sure, he's going to do right. And we need to be aware of that. Our conviction about God and the nature of God. The second reason, and by far, the most assuring reason we believe in eternal life is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Because I live, you shall live also. Now let me ask you a question. This Jesus, who was right about so many other things, don't you think he was right about life after death as well? I certainly think he was. And then the third reason we believe in eternal life has to do with the witness of the church and the testimony of the ages. The witness of the church and the testimony of the ages. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was persecuted by the Nazis April the 9th, 1945. He had just finished conducting a little worship service when two men of the Gestapo came in and they said, Prisoner Bonhoeffer, come with us. He knew what it was and so did everybody else. But just as he was leaving the room, he pulled a friend aside and he said, This is the end, but for me, the beginning of life. But for me, the beginning of life. He was talking about eternal life when he said, For me, the beginning of life. Dr. Gordon Thompson was one of my advisors at the Candler School of Theology. He said that he went to visit his mother the last week of her life. This was back in 1975. She was 86 years of age and he had planned to spend the whole week with her. She had not eaten anything. She was in the hospital. But he told her it was Monday, Thursday, and so she participated in the Lord's Supper. Then on Friday afternoon, it looked like she was about to die. She was leaving the world. Her eyes closed. But then he said, suddenly they popped wide open. And he said, suddenly all the lines on her face that had been brought about by suffering and age disappeared. She was young and radiant and beautiful again. And he knew at that moment she was experiencing the glory of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know that little book, Heaven is for Real? This is about a four-year-old boy's visit to heaven. I believe that that's just another sign of the testimony of the ages. The testimony of the ages. Now, like some of you, I've conducted funerals of many great saints of the church. And I just knew as I conducted their funerals that these people could never die or else the whole of creation would make no sense whatsoever. Why well, preach the resurrection hope and life everlasting as a comfort and strength to God's people? And then why preach resurrection hope and life after death? Because it strengthens our present day ministries. Why do you think character has decelerated so fast in this culture? Because for some reason we have dismissed the idea of the life everlasting. In our revolt against selfish individualism and pie in the sky by and by, we have simply dismissed pie in the sky to the detriment of this generation, to the detriment of the whole world. Let me ask you a question. If there is a life after death, Surely it brings all of our conduct into question. If there is a life after death, then right and wrong take on a very great significance. Loving other people takes on a great significance. Some of the things we think are so important do not take on much significance. What really becomes important is that we live a life worthy of commitment and love and devotion to God while we're in the world. I read a story about a prisoner who for a long time had been held deep in a dungeon. He had been there so long that he became friends with the insects and the spiders. 
he was not dissatisfied with his life until one day he noticed this little light way up in the prison cell. So somehow he managed to grab hold to the wall and he worked his way up and he looked out the window and there he saw a world he had quite forgotten. He saw a blue sky, he saw a lake, he saw his own home and then he dropped back into the cell again. But he was never the same anymore because you see he had seen a new world. Well, we've been looking at eternal life. What that means is we'll never be satisfied with the way things are again. And besides, Paul said, Christ has been raised from the dead, and so will we as God's people. And the church said, Amen. Let us pray. Oh God, we're so thankful for the message of hope that we find in Scripture. We're grateful, O oh God, for Paul's daringness to set the record straight that Jesus Christ is alive. And we are thankful that he lives in each of us and that all we have to do is accept him into our hearts and we'll be different altogether, the kind of people that he calls us to be. Thank you for these friends who've joined us for the service. It's all in your name. Amen.
teach me to live. I want to stay on course. I'm giving control to you with little remorse. I'm holding nothing back, not turning around, not shying away, not backing down. Oh God, you remember me. Broken and weak, we struggle, seemingly all alone, weary from all our trials, weeping what we have sown, lost and afraid we Far over land and phone, searching for hope and a loving heart, Jesus will bring us Wandering all life's treasures, pleasure our only guest, dangerously close to ruin, failing to know we're blessed, lonely, unsure. We stumble far from the Master's throne. Hush, now he's here, and he wants us near. Jesus will bring us Prideful in all our chaos, boasted by Satan's lie, 